Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Pavarotti, Placido, and Pete. They may not be at the Met, but that doesn't mean rockers can't belt it out with the best of them. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We say bravo to our favorite rock operas. And then our very own diva, Jim, adds a song he can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to be talking about the venerable tradition of rock operas. Greg, you hear those two words put together, and the first band that springs to mind is The Who. I'm a little younger than you, never got to see Tommy live or Quadrophenia, but I think you caught one of the revival tours, no? Yeah, I did see Quadrophenia in 96, 97 when it was a revival. The original one is available on YouTube. You can see the very first Quadrophenia from 73, and it's actually very good. It's just that four-piece band doing the entire opera. But by 96, 97, they were getting a little slower, and they were uh, inviting (laughs) these guest stars up there. Billy Idol was up there doing Ace Face on the show that I saw. Give me the original band doing it every time. Even Sting in the movie had to be better. That's coming up later, but first some music news. That is Jack White with the title track from his latest album, Lazaretta. We've covered it on Sound Opinions, and now it is a huge hit on the charts. We've got a lot of chart news, in fact, this week. Lazaretto has become the biggest selling vinyl album in 20 years. 60,000 copies already of, of Lazaretto have been sold, the biggest sales for a vinyl album since Pearl Jam's Vitology in 1994. Now, I mean, vinyl basically went away about 10, 15 years ago, and then it resurfaced with a vengeance in the last five or six years. Vinyl sales have been increasing every year since then, with lots of help from Jack White, who has consistently been at the forefront of the uh, the vinyl evolution, as it were. I mean, when we think about last year, the biggest selling of vinyl record was uh, Daft Punk's Random Access Memories at 49,000 copies. Lazaretto has already exceeded that by more than 10,000 copies. And the other thing I love about this record, Jim, it, it is a, definitely like a Jack White-ism. Side A plays as intended as a normal LP, but apparently on the Ultra LP, the flip side plays from inside to out. So I guess you'd have to adjust your <laughs> turntable to be able to play that. Yeah, so how would that work? Yeah. If nothing else, it's an incredible souvenir to add to your collection. 
Greg, fun is also the operative word in this next chart tidbit. The last week in July marked the first time in an extraordinary 30-year career that Weird Al Yankovic was at number one with an album. And we never got around to commenting on that. We have to. Mandatory fun spent only one week at number one. It's down to number 14 this week. But it's a really fun record that's getting Al some of the best reviews of his career. And as a former copy editor, you, and a current English professor, me, we just have to applaud that brilliant parody of Robin Thicke's blurred lines, which Al calls word crimes, and he uses it to uh, take on bad grammar, frequently misused words, and malapropisms. I just, I, I mean, that's brilliant, right? Okay, now here's the deal. I'll try to educate you. Gonna familiarize you with the nomenclature. you learn the definitions of nouns and prepositions. Also celebrating a first in an extraordinary career, Hypnotic Eye, the latest from Tom Petty, which we recently reviewed and we were both big fans of, was Tom Petty's first number one album in his entire career. You know, now Billboard uh, did a story about superstar artists who you would be shocked to learn had never hit number one until recently. As I said, Petty, finally there. But before him, the record for the longest stretch without a number one hit, despite selling millions of records, was held by Tony Bennett. 54 years it took Tony to have his first number one hit. <laughs> but, but there's more Tony chart news this week. She loves the theater, but she never comes late. I never bother with people that I hate. That's why this chick is a tramp. Yes, indeed, Jim. Tony Bennett just keeps on rolling. Old man river of jazz, right? The guy's pushing 90. I mean, he's well into his 80s, and he has another number one on Billboard's jazz digital charts, Anything Goes. A little bit of help this time from Lady Gaga, who is his new pal, new duet partner. They debuted together by singing that song, The Lady is a Tramp, from Bennett's Duets 2 album in 2011. That was a Billboard 200 album chart topper, Bennett's first number one album in his storied career. And he's been using these collaborations with contemporary artists to basically build a new audience for himself. He continues to sell out theater and festival shows, in large part to the fact that he's able to draw an audience from this younger generation. And Lady Gaga has been a huge Tony Bennett fan and now a collaborator. And uh, they sold 16,000 downloads for Anything Goes to become the chart-topping jazz single. Greg, one more chart note for this week. Hot off the presses, at number one is the soundtrack for Guardians of the Galaxy, 
Awesome Mix Volume 1 is the subtitle for that soundtrack record. It's the latest Marvel Comics adaptation. People are crazy about that movie. They're having a bang-up time. It's supposed to be the greatest comic book movie in some time, mainly because it doesn't take itself too seriously, but also in no small part because I think the soundtrack is fantastic. This is like the best 70s rock soundtrack since Richard Linkletter's uh, Dazed and Confused. You've got 10cc on there and Blue Swede and the Raspberries and the Runaways, right? And, and I'm sure that many of the young people who are loving the movie and digging the music and actually buying this record have never heard any of these bands. Right. They're all new for them, you know. But Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack is moving more than 100,000 copies, download and sales in week one, giving Disney, which is behind the film, a huge hit. And meanwhile, second album still in the top 20 is the never-ending Disney Frozen soundtrack. Mm. Took 34 weeks, but Mm. Frozen finally dropped out of the top five. It's now sitting at number eight. What else is at the top of the charts right now? The Now 51 compilation of pop hits for kiddies is at number two. Godsmack is uh, thundering away at number three. Spoon had a number four debut. It's their third top ten album. Pretty impressive. We both gave an enthusiastic buy it to the latest from Spoon. Obviously, people are listening. Eric Clapton is at uh, number seven. He had debuted last week at number two with his tribute record to J.J. Kale, The Breeze. Ten weeks now, number three stood empty. Nobody thought there would be family left up behind the Christmas tree Then a couple from up north Sorrow and his wife arrived Before the sun had left the streets They were living inside You're listening to Sound Opinions and that is a track from an obscure record called SF Sorrow by the British psychedelic soul band The Pretty Things. Greg, we're going to be talking about rock operas in this show. And uh, I think pretty much everybody thinks that Tommy in 1969 by The Who was the first rock opera. I've got news for you. SF Sorrow preceded Tommy by more than a year. Uh, Recording started at Abbey Road by The Pretty Things in November of 67. The record was released in February of 68. And it was every bit as ambitious as The Who's story of the deaf, dumb, and blind messiah, Tommy. It went back to World War One, and there was a, uh, you know, a soldier who was conflicted about the violence, and his love was coming to him aboard a dirigible that catches fire and goes down, and there was angst and drama and flames and death and romance, and it's a great record, SF Sorrow, even if nobody's ever heard of it. SF Sorrow's born. SF Sorrow's born. Let's talk about what a rock opera is before we get into giving some of our favorites throughout rock history. Yeah, Jim, I think there's a lot of blurring of the lines between what a rock opera is and what a concept album is. And I think a concept album is sort of a broader range term. It refers to a tonal or thematic kind of record, uh, linked songs, because they're about a similar subject or a similar mood. But I think in a rock opera, you're basically talking about a central character 
or characters, and there's a story or a plot attached to what happens to those characters. It's sort of sequential in in terms of a beginning, middle, and end. And there's been a number throughout the decades. As you mentioned, SF Sorrow was a very important initial work. Pete Townsend acknowledged it as, a, as an influence on well, he's Tommy. he's gone back and forth between saying he never heard it when he wrote Tommy and other times when he gave it a nod. And Townsend did come to own the rock opera area after a while. After Tommy came out in 1969, he produced Quadrophenia in 73. He later on did White City in 85 and Iron Man in 1989 as solo operas. Now, you're right. Tommy is regarded generally as the first rock opera, wrongly by many people, but it's, it is definitely the most famous one. Tommy, can you hear me? Can you feel me near you? Tommy, can you see me? Can I help to cheer you? Ooh, Tommy, 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 Tommy. I think uh, Townsend did better work, and he himself has talked about this in recent years, on Quadrophenia. I think it was a more developed rock opera than Tommy was. The ideas were a little clearer. The songwriting was stronger. Quadrophenia came out in 1973, and it was basically taking a lot of ideas that Townsend had played around with on the Who's singles throughout the years. He created this character, Jimmy who became the lens by which he viewed his generation. And he created this idea of, I'm going to do a loose autobiography of the Who, so I'm going to create four characters. This character wasn't schizophrenic, he was quadraphenic, you know? (laughs) It's going to come from four corners at you, and, you know, quadraphonic sound was the big rage then. And his ideal vision was that this album was going to be experienced through those quadraphonic speaker systems. So here's this mod, right? This British subculture of the early 60s of which the Who were a part. It was like a basically a big gang of kids who believed in similar kind of things. You know, there was speed gobbling, scooter riding, you know, they were into, into fashion, they were into R&B and soul. They shared a commonality that Jimmy embodies. And uh, this four-way personality that he has is in constant conflict. You know, he's coming into adulthood and he's not sure what that's going to mean. Nobody in this world is very hospitable to Jimmy or his generation. It was that classic 60s thing where, where kids, you know, were wondering, what the heck are we growing up into? What kind of world is this? The adults don't get us. There's wars out there all over the world. There are no jobs, you know, basically like what every young generation faces through the decades. In the song The uh, Punk Meets the Godfather, Jimmy goes to see a mod band. So here the who becomes part of the story. Seats in empty rows It all belongs to 
and you realize these guys ain't saying nothing. They're just like us. Yeah. They're a bunch of guys. They don't have all the answers. Finally, at the end, he's on the cusp of committing suicide. He's standing out in the in the middle of this rock in the middle of the sea, and you think, well, the guy's going to off himself. And then he comes to this realization: the only person that can solve my problems is me. And you know, on that climactic track, "Love Rain or Me," you know, starts pouring down, and he reveals himself to himself. He discovers what it's going to take to get through life. have several famous fights lasting the duration of our entire friendship and partnership. And uh, one that we've never given as much air to (laughs) is The Who. I am going to earn the enmity of many listeners right now by saying I think The Who is one of the most overrated bands in rock history. Primarily, you know, Pete Townshend, great writer. Roger Daltrey, what a tool. What a (laughs) ham. What an over-singer. Man, that whole love rain or me and the see-me-feel-me. The guy is an unrepentant cheese dog. I've never been able to take this band seriously because I can't stomach Daltrey. Well, they, and they, Townsend, you know, basically wrote this as the superstar, you know, Daltrey over-the-top moment to shine. Right. You know, it was like uh, Paul Simon writing for Art Garfunkel or something like that. Some Garfunkel people didn't could, tolerate that either. Garfunkel you know? could sing. <laughs> yeah. I think Daltrey can sing, too. He was perfect voice for the big anthems that uh, Townsend was writing. And, and they're balanced by Townsend's own voice in these songs, which is softer and more fragile, bringing the more sensitive undercurrents Well, I agree to with the, that. You know, music. before you send me all the hate mail that's coming my way for saying what I just said about The Who, just ask yourself, Who fans, how much better a band would this have been as a trio with Townsend singing? Uh, I don't know. They never would have had those big anthems, and I think a, a song like Love, Rain, or Me wouldn't have been the same with Townsend singing instead of Daltrey. But I think in The Punk Meets the Godfather, you really get to the layers that uh, Townsend had in his songwriting and that make the emotional undercurrents in this particular rock opera really work for me. The song does quote The Who's earlier hit, My Generation, and I think Townsend really bringing his whole career to that point full circle. Take a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. But coming up, we'll talk a lot more about rock operas and move into the new millennium. Then it's my turn to pop a coin into the Desert Island jukebox, so stay tuned.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Blue Oyster Cult concert, 14 years old. And I thought them lasers were a spider chasing me. On my way home, got pulled over in Rogersville, Alabama, with a half ounce of weed and a case of Sterling Big Mouth. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that's the drive-by trucker's Southern Rock Opera. Yes, we're talking about rock operas moving our way chronologically through some of the best in rock history. The early 70s were really the first great explosion of rock operas. And just a year later was another rock opera with a different teen protagonist hero and a very different tone. Genesis, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway in 1974. Now, I think your introduction up top was really good about what a rock opera is. I would add a few more thoughts. You know, what makes opera different from other kinds of classical music? Obviously, the vocals and the characters, but the libretto, the book, the fact that you could read this as a novel or a short story, but then it also becomes something entirely different when it's acted out and sung on stage. The New Yorker last year, in some consideration of Genesis being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, ran an article saying that The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is the Ulysses of concept (laughs) albums, I would say, of rock operas. What we have here is a very English, very upper middle class, boarding school educated art rock band in Genesis singing about the life of a half Puerto Rican former gang member and graffiti artist on the streets of New York. And his brother is sucked into this underworld that that, that you get to uh, by, via the subway entrances and is harassed by all sorts of mysterious, dark, sinister forces and monsters. You get a little bit of Wagner here, you know, with mythology. You get a little bit of Christianity, right? This is, you know, Genesis is kind of doing their take on Jesus Christ Superstar, which is a pretty fine rock opera, too. And then you get a whole lot of hallucinatory weirdness and nonsense. So there, there are countless websites devoted to footnoting and annotating every line in The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, trying to figure out what Peter Gabriel was saying. I think it's an emotional ride more than anything, with a couple of themes that do emerge loud and clear. Death, renewal, and escape. How do we get away from our surroundings, and how do we deal with the strangeness of the universe, which is really strange in Genesis's world? You know, a song like the Carpet Crawlers. You know, what are these weird, sensual, monstrous characters that are enveloping me? Mild men and supermen are held in grip tonight, and the wise and foolish virgins. Oh, 
music matches the character. You have something like the lamia, which I always thought of as, as like sucker fish that are going to devour you. Or you have uh, Lily White Lilith, who's kind of a sinister seductress. And the music in each of those cases matches the, the character that Gabriel is trying to portray in the lyrics. Lily White Lilith, she's going to take you through the tunnel of night. And then, of course, you have the title track, which does nothing less than steal the hook from uh, On Broadway, the, the 60s pop hit. And the land lies down. A lot of people think about them as these pretentious prog rockers from the 70s. And yet, Peter Gabriel was a huge soul music fan. The fact that they were borrowing from the Drifters, they quote them a couple of times on this record, indicates that they were influenced by American soul and R&B, those early 60s Spectre tracks, Lieber and Stoller. That was also influencing this music as well and gave it some soul beneath that progressive rock approach. Lord knows what I I should add that there's a Brian Eno presence on this record. He is credited with enosification, as if Genesis, which at this point had one of the most unique sounding guitarists of all time in Steve Hackett, uh, as if they weren't weird enough. And Tony Banks' synthesizers, Eno came in and made it sound even weirder. And I'm, this is Phil Collins' coolest moment. I mean, the rhythms here. Right? So it's musically excellent. It's lyrically intriguing. Gabriel acted out many of the different parts on stage. Yeah, it was an ambitious production that almost bankrupted the band, and it really broke them up, because I think a lot of the, the band members didn't agree with Gabriel's vision of this project, nor Gabriel with them. You know, the whole idea that uh, he would do these costumes, I think, was a little bit off-putting to some of the other guys in the group. It focused a lot of attention on Peter Gabriel. They didn't much like that either. They never made another album together. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are continuing our discussion about rock operas. Now, uh, when we talk about rock operas, our definition of rock is pretty broad. Just about every style of popular music falls under the rubric rock for us. I always (laughs) say Elvis Presley to Public Enemy and everything in between. Well, there you go. And here's an example of that range, hopefully. Willie Nelson's Red-Headed Stranger from 1975. Now, Willie Nelson, not necessarily a rock artist, but certainly influenced by rock, and he in turn influenced a lot of rockers. This particular record coming out as he was bursting into stardom. Nelson had uh, quite a reputation as a songwriter in the 60s. He'd written The Crazy, which Patsy Cline turned into a hit. Ray Price had a big hit with Nelson's Nightlife. Farron Young did Hello Walls, written by Nelson. Billy Walker did uh, Willie Nelson's Funny How Time Slips Away. 
But as an artist in his own right, Nelson really didn't get rolling until the 70s. But by the time he was signed to Columbia Records in the middle part of that decade, he got for the first time in his career complete artistic freedom to do whatever he wanted in the recording studio. By this point, he had moved back to Austin, Texas. He'd spent a few not-so-fruitful years in Nashville. He became basically a resident at the Armadillo World Headquarters in Austin, performing for the hippies and the cowboys and the misfits. And this whole notion of outlaw country was born. And with Redheaded Stranger, I think he, he created the outlaw country classic, the, the persona of the red-headed stranger became Willie Nelson, and Willie Nelson became the red-headed stranger. I mean, it was just this amazing confluence of art and life. Don't cross him, don't boss him, he's wild in his sorrow, he's riding and hiding his pain. Don't fight him, don't spite him, just wait till tomorrow, maybe he'll ride off again. The song had been around for a number of years. It wasn't a Nelson song, the song Red-Headed Stranger. In fact, it is a song that he would sing his children to sleep with at night. He so was so fond of the song. He used to DJ, and he would play that song during his shifts on the air. Now he finally decided to build an entire album on it. He said the inspiration for doing that was on a long road trip with his wife at the time, Connie, to Colorado, a skiing trip. And he said, you know, I've got to come up with a new album for, for this new big recording contract I have with Columbia Records. And she she suggested, hey, why don't you do something around Red-Headed Stranger? And Nelson said the ideas just started flowing. He started to build an entire storyline around this character. And the storyline was basically this. It was set in an undetermined period of time. Most people place it somewhere in the 19th century. Here's this preacher. He's lovelorn. He's in a jealous rage. He kills his wife and her lover. And he spends his life on the lamb. He's running from the law. He's running from himself in many ways. And the whole story revolves around this idea of this heartbroken guy committing this senseless act of rage. And then later on, through his various episodes, coming to terms with it. Right down to the cover art, everything fits together on this record. There's a wanted poster on the cover with the red-headed stranger, Willie himself. There's a five-panel strip of uh, these cartoons, these kind of rustic-style cartoons telling the story And he's also drawing on some of his heroes. One of the big hits on the album cover of Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, the Fred Rose classic, that Willie turned into a huge number one single. Love is like a dying ember And only memories remain And through I'll remember blue eyes crying in the rain. Now, the most radical aspect of this record in many ways was not so much the storyline, but the way Willie wanted to record it. Here's this big recording deal, and he decides basically to record it in extremely stripped-down acoustic fashion. He goes into a studio in Texas and gathers a few of his friends around him. There's his sister, Bobby, playing piano. There's Mickey Raphael and harmonica, a small rhythm section. He doesn't want this big, overblown, Nashville-style production. In fact, when the uh, executives at 
Columbia Records first heard it. They go, this is the demo, right? This isn't the finished record. You're not planning on putting this out. And he goes, no, this is the way I want to put this record out. It was the time of the preacher When the story began Of the choice of a lady Love of a man How he loved her so dearly He went out of his mind When she left him for someone That she left behind Nobody expected it to be a huge hit, but... Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain was a number one single. This record went on to sell three million copies. It turned Willie Nelson into a superstar. Greg, uh, you know, an interesting point on what you were saying. Sometimes the sound is very simple. It's the concept, it's the ambition that's bigger in a rock opera. I, I think that there's this this notion out there that it's pretentious, it's overblown, the idea of a rock opera. But really what you have again and again and again from artists and songwriters who are attempting this form, whether it's Peter Gabriel or Billy Joe Armstrong, who I'm going to talk about next, is I wanted to get beyond verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, mm-hmm. right? Beyond the three-minute pop song and see if I could tell a bigger story, just like the short story writer may want to write a novel. The novelist may be interested in what can I do bringing this to the screen, right? And Redheaded Stranger had an interesting afterlife. There was a movie in 1986 with Nelson starring as the character. Redheaded Stranger had eyes like thunder. Stop it! His lips, they were sad and tight. And then the lyrics were featured in the first issue of that comic, Preacher, which was huge in the comic underground. So what we really have with rock operas is the cross-fertilization of art forms and artists being ambitious. Now, to be sure, there are some failed rock operas. But before we leave the 70s, I think we ought to give a shout-out to a few others that were really influential in the late 60s and early 70s. You had Arthur by the Kinks, which is a high point. By Lou Reed. I would call that a rock opera. We've talked about that on the show a lot. To some extent, Ziggy Stardust by sure. David Bowie, Frank Zappa's Joe's Garage, certainly sprawling. Three albums. Hey, down in Joe's Garage, we didn't have no dope or LSD, but a couple of quarts of beer would fix it so the intonation would not offend your ear. And the same old chords going over and over became a symphony. We could play it again and again and again Cause it sounded good to me One more time I think that there's also this idea that this form ended probably in the 80s with The Wall by Pink Floyd. Not true. We're going to highlight two more rock operas in our discussion of this form that are much more recent, and there's several others that can join the list. Let me give you a few from the last ten years. The Decemberist, Crane Wife. A rain cloud, a crane on land. 
project? Neil Young and Crazy Horse's Greendale, which Neil, to the chagrin of many fans, put on as a big arena stage show with like 20 different characters who lip-synced to him singing, right? Every critic in the world hated that, except for you and me. We were quoted on the DVD that came out of the I was very proud. I thought that was a fascinating project. Back in the day, living in the summer of And Green Day. I mentioned Billy Joe Armstrong. 2004, seventh studio album from this little pop-punk band from uh, Northern California, the Bay Area. Really ambitious. Billy Joe Armstrong obviously was an Anglophile, big Who fan, and he was turning consciously to Tommy and Quadrophenia and trying to do his take on it. You know, what happens if the Ramones try to write Quadrophenia is basically what Green Day is doing in American Idiot. The height of the Bush administration and a sort of political apathy alleged by his generation, and he didn't buy that. So with that classic Townsend storyline of the messianic or is he character, Jesus of suburbia, who may or may not be able to lead the disaffected youth out of the doldrums. We get two characters, St. Jimmy and the imaginatively titled (laughs) What's-Her-Name, young couple in love, in search of identity, in search of political illumination at a time of great apathy and disconnectedness, dealing with these issues and falling in love. And, you know, if it sounds like, I got to say, whether it's Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or Red-Headed Stranger... Every rock opera has a little bit of West Side Story in it, you know that, which means a little bit of Romeo and Juliet, right? right? They all got it. You know, it all comes together and then winds up on Broadway, becomes an actual Broadway production. Right, much like uh, his hero, Pete Townsend, ended up with his operas 
Tommy and uh, Quadrophenia end up on Broadway. And you mentioned Jesus of Suburbia, this uh, five-part, nine-minute suite that's clearly derived from that uh, mini-opera that Townsend wrote as sort of a warm-up to his bigger works, a quick one while he's away. The other parallel with The Who is uh, Trey Cool as a drummer. There's lead drums on a lot of these tracks here. Uh, he is not just keeping, you know, that polka beat punk rock time. I mean, these guys have really grown as musicians, as you can hear on this album. And I think Trey Cool is a big part of that, that those rolling and tumbling fills, not to mention the four-part harmonies. I think it's the most improbable growth spurt by any band to go from yeah. these self-described pop-punk dirt balls from the early 90s. You know, you never thought we'd hear from them again after their couple of huge successes. And here they are, seven albums into their career, making one of their most ambitious records, not only of their career, but one of the most ambitious records of that decade. It's also their downfall, because this is, you know, hereafter we get way too much Billy Joe Armstrong with acoustic guitar doing sensitive modes. You know, the other point to make about American Idiot, I think, is it's a, a welcome blast of female empowerment. So far, all the rock operas we've talked about, it's going to change in a minute with our next one, have been, you know, pretty testosterone heavy. And it's been that kind of format, I think. But Billy Joe Armstrong, inspired by Bikini Kill, the Riot Girl band, really gives some soul and some energy and some power. I think What's Her Name, the character, steals the show. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking about great rock operas, and uh, Janelle Monet has been giving us a series of them in recent years. She is now up to parts four and five of this ongoing story that has basically <laughs> consumed her entire career to this point. She began with uh, an EP in 2007 called Metropolis, Sweet One, uh, referencing the 1920s silent film Metropolis as sort of a beginning point, this sort of futuristic vibe running through this series of albums. The most recent album is called Electric Lady, as I mentioned, that's parts four and five. But the one uh, we want to focus on is the Arc Android from 2010, parts two and three. Are you keeping up with all this? I mean, it's very complicated in some ways, but the music is fantastic. And I think the, the high point of these rock operas that she's been churning out is the Arc Android from 2010. It focuses that this entire series of albums and EPs is focused around this messianic android character. There's a lot of messiah-type figures. I, I don't know what it is about rock operas <laughs> and messiahs. Also, barbers are big, but I don't think there are any rock operas about barbers. But, but I think even in that realm, this character that Monet created is unique. Cindy Mayweather. First of all, she's a woman. That makes her unique in many ways from a lot of other rock opera 
key characters, protagonists. And I think what she represents, Monet being a woman of color, being a woman. This whole idea that I don't quite fit in, I'm not accepted by society, I will always be treated as a minority. Cindy Mayweather is the ultimate minority, the ultimate outsider, the misfit who stands in for all of the misfits who had ever lived. Monet is arguing in these recordings, don't put me in a box. Don't tell me who I am. Everybody sees an African-American woman from Atlanta and they think, oh, she's got to be an R&B singer. Well, I'm not just an R&B singer. I can do classical music. I can do 20s jazz swing. I can do rock. I can do hip-hop. I can do funk. I can do it all and mix them together. And I think that's what's fascinating about these records, these stylistic jumping around, the the way she just blurs boundaries, not only of personality and character, but also of music. This is part of a great African-American tradition. The uh, Chicago jazz critic John Corbett did a really influential, on me anyway, essay about 20 years ago talking about the the use of space as a metaphor by African-American artists ranging from Sun Ra through George Clinton, right, up to the present day. Uh, He never wrote about Janelle Monae as far as I know, but she is the capper on this. You know, space is the great place of freedom, of equality. It is the new frontier. It is the promised land. Also in space, there are no genres, right? Right. So I can bring in jazz, and I can bring in funk, and I can bring in psychedelic rock, and it all comes together really effectively. And I can give it to you in dribs and drabs. I'm going to keep putting out installments. I think eventually it's going to be like the ring cycle. You know, if she wants to perform (laughs) it live, it's going to be like a three-day thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, you know, you're talking about this this tradition of Afrofuturism, this whole idea that, you know, it really began with uh, Sun Ra as being yeah. one of the principal architects of this. And, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, you mentioned, you know, I would put Cannibal Ox in that, in that uh, category. Outcast, I think, were big purveyors of this. And now we have Janelle Monet as the latest. But this whole idea that you can break the chains of your own slavery on many different levels through imagining a future that has nothing to do with the place we're in now, taking us someplace different. And that's what these records do for me. Janelle Monae uh, is one of the most fascinating artists of the last 10 years, and the Arc Android is, is, her, is her masterpiece. And I think it's consumed, just like the best rock operas of the 70s, in the dark, via headphones, <laughs> looking at the album notes, you know. Hopefully you have it on vinyl so you can actually look at a gatefold sleeve. But it shows, Greg, since that's only a couple of years old, four years old, the Arc Android, that this form is alive and well. It can be done very, very poorly indeed. I will give you one example. Kilroy was here. Sticks. Nuff said. Okay? (laughs) Nuff said. We won't even go there. But this is an ambitious form. If you've got the vision and the guts, go for it. Rock operas are alive and well.
Well, that's what we think anyways. Tell us what you think. What's your favorite rock opera of all time? And where are you hearing that tradition today? Call 888-859-1800 and check out more of our favorite rock operas by following us at Beats Music. Coming up, it's Jim's turn to add a track he can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis. And most of you already know what time it is by that song. It is time to go to the desert island and play a track we cannot live without. And now Jim is climbing into the boat. What are you going to play for us, Jim? Greg, inspired by our recent trip to Portland to record Broken Bells, which you're going to hear on an upcoming episode, I want to pay tribute to the forgotten hardcore punk scene of the Pacific Northwest in the late 70s and early 80s. And I'm going to, I'm going to go for a twofer. We were talking on member station OPB about great Portland rock music. You talked about the Wipers, and I talked about Poison Idea. And a lot of people came up to us afterward and said, thank you. You know, these bands are forgotten. Portland, of course, has a great scene, right? Elliot Smith and the Decemberists continuing and Sleater Kenny, right? But I think the 80s hardcore scene has been forgotten. It really was launched by a guy named Greg Sage, who had a band called the Wipers in 1977. And Sage put out several brilliant records. Records, kind of in the mold of wire, minimalist, industrial, punk, but melodic, and he was an incredibly virtuosic guitar player. Very influential, both in terms of music and the indie aesthetic. He had his own record label, Zeno Records, which really inspired all the Seattle bands that would follow. Nirvana and Mudhoney and the Melvins, as well as bands like Dinosaur Jr. Pavement has paid tribute to the Wipers. Nirvana actually covered two Wiper songs. Following shortly on the heels of the Wipers was a band called Poison Idea. And Poison Idea redefines the concept of unrelenting hardcore. There was a guitarist named Tom Roberts who is better known in the underground rock world as Pig Champion. Pig weighed about 450 pounds. He would sit on stage in a metal folding chair and play the most amazing guitar you have ever heard. 
He looked scary as anything on stage, but he was a sweet, kind, and gentle man who said, yeah, I'm fat, but I want the first thing that people to think about me is, what a guitarist. But all anybody ever wrote about was that Pig was a very big man. He died in 2006 at age 47, and in tribute to him, Poison Idea, after his death, dug up a great live set from 1996. It was released on Sub Pop Records as Pig's Last Stand, and it includes a killer cover of this Wipers tune up front. Honestly, kids, there's no grunge in the 90s without what happened in Portland in the early 80s. Here is Poison Idea covering the Wipers up front on Sound Opinions. It's got to be up front, it's got to be so close to touch. Up front, it's so close to trust. Up front, it's so close to touch. Poison Idea with the killer Wipers cover up front on Sound Opinions. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, I know you're going to be wearing your skinny tie. We're going to take a look at the new wave era of the early to mid-80s. Greg, Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our production assistant is Anthony Martinez. And our intrepid intern is Sam Taylor. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. I send word by them all to just have you call and tell me you want to come home. New messages. Hey guys, my name is Jessica Judicious, and I really love your show. I try not to miss it ever. And I just wanted to comment about the Ramones' Rocket to Russia dissection. This episode really warmed my heart. Just listening to the Ramones' music brought me back to when I was young. My friends and I would just hang out in our basement and play Ramones' song after Ramones' song. We called ourselves actually the Ramonians. We were a bunch of dumb kids that grew up in trailer parks, not very rich or anything. So we connected a lot with the Ramones, like on a subliminal level. When I'm lying in my fitting head, I don't want to go. Nothing ever seems to turn out right, and I don't want to go. How do you move in a world with fog with your wish changing things? Makes the wish that I could be a star. 
My name is Sean. I'm from Florence, Colorado. You had something about my favorite artists and what would they cook for me? I'd have to say probably Jeff Rattal or Ian Anderson. His music is so passionate and so lively. I mean, I can well imagine a Celtic fest with haggis and other incredible dishes that he would serve. And he would probably play music while I was eating it. Opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.